the best-selling compliance handbook by compliance evangelist and compliance podcast network founder tom fox has been updated revised and improved in its new second edition this new podcast series will build upon the best nuts and bolts compliance handbook around to provide you the best information on implementing and enhancing a best practices compliance program Fox back for another episode, and you're in for a real treat today because I'm in for a real treat today. We're here to talk to Eric Young. Eric is one of the longest-running compliance practitioners I am aware of, and he's going to tell us why he's so long-running at it and a lot of other stuff. He's got a new book coming out soon that's incredibly exciting. We're going to talk a little bit about that. So, Eric, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I look forward to speaking. Eric, could you uh, give us a little sense of your professional background and why I call you the longest-running compliance professional around? Sure. So, uh, essentially, I re-engineer compliance programs to enable regulatory health and growth for, for businesses. And, and that's what's enabled me to, I like to think, succeed for 40 years. Started with the Federal Reserve analyzing bank proposals to expand overseas or internationally. So, I was able to mix strategy and, and compliance and, and culture. And that was the foundation of, of the rest of my career with J.P. Morgan, S&P Global Ratings, General Electric, and four international banks, including UBS, and most recently BNP Paribas, all in the form of being a chief compliance officer. Eric, from that position, I think you are really uniquely suited to talk about the evolution and not only your thinking, but financial institutions, regulators, and private businesses thinking about controls, culture, and compliance. And I was wondering if you could just sort of give us the evolution in your thinking. Happy to, to do so. So I am going to date myself. You know, when I first joined the FCPA Act of 1977 was still relatively new and the concept of internal accounting controls was still relatively new. And over time, that evolved with COSO and the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines in which internal accounting controls, internal controls, enterprise risk management, and most importantly, having an effective compliance program, all were derivatives of, of one another. And that makes sense for a company to succeed because you need accurate books and records. You need to comply with laws and regs and have transactions which are properly authorized. It's more than just ticking the box, but over time, it's evolved into behavior, culture, conduct, which is in many ways the glue of the organization from the top down, but most importantly from the bottom up. Eric, I recently had a friend comment about a post on internal controls, and he had one of the most prescient comments literally I've seen around controls, and he called internal controls corporate discipline. Would you agree with that assessment, and if so, why? Absolutely, yes, because Internal controls is an internal mechanism. It's self-governance, it's self-regulation in, in many ways. And as defined by accounting or other guidance, it goes back to what I mentioned before. It's accurate books and records, uh, authorized transactions and complying with laws and regs. But that's much easier said than done. It takes a conscience, if you will. And that's where the culture and the conduct comes in. As you may know, I oftentimes 
equate or analogize the corporate body similar to the human body. So there's lots of moving parts, a circulatory system, a nervous system, a brain, and a heart, which ultimately is another way of what your friend describes as internal controls being corporate discipline. The, the challenge going forward is we don't live in isolation. We don't live in a cave, but we have external variables that change every day, including the weather. And it's a matter of having the discipline internally, but also the foresight to know what to wear if it's raining or knowing when it's going to snow, so to speak. Eric, when people hear the word control override, they often think of something nefarious. They think of someone skirting controls or, or uh, evading controls so that uh, they can do something that is either against corporate policy or perhaps even against the law. I try to counsel people uh, control override in and of itself is not bad. Nevertheless, I was wondering if I could have your thoughts on what a control override is, how it can be an appropriate business tool, but also how it can get companies into trouble. Yes. So you're right. There's good and and bad consequences uh, in terms of corporate overrides. So a good example is, uh, by analogy, the GPS. If you literally follow the map on the car, it might not necessarily know that there's a lot of construction ahead or if you're following blindly, you can still get lost or end up taking a lot longer as opposed to having human judgment, which is a form of override to make a different turn because you know it's a faster way or you know that there's less traffic on the back roads. The key in the eyes of regulators is, is the what's the purpose of the override? Uh, surveillance and, and alerts are one example in which if there's too much backlog of alerts because a firm doesn't have enough first-line or second-line people to review the alerts, escalate them in terms of uh, is it a case, is it suspicious, and then ultimately file a suspicious activity report. If it's documented and methodical and the rules are changed to have less false positives and it's proven uh, it's not because of budget or not enough people to deal with the backlog, that's a corporate override that makes sense because it took thought and ultimately human judgment. The downside of of, uh, a corporate override is if it's meant to override the right decisions for the wrong reasons, not enough budget to pay for people to go through the alerts, which ultimately leads to late or no suspicious activity reports. Regulators not only hate that, they'll penalize you for that because you could be missing very important transactions that are flowing through the bank or the supplier, bribery, whatever the case may be. Overrides uh, need to be documented, justified, and proceduralized as to what, why, and when. And they should be, most importantly, the exception rather than the rule. In your upcoming book, I hope this doesn't give too much away, but you have a chapter around uh, Plato's The Allegory of the Cave. And that, frankly, is one of my favorite stories. One, because I can actually understand it. But two, (laughs) it is incredibly helpful in explaining a wide variety of phenomenon and, and particularly even within the compliance and ethics space. But I wanted to maybe start with, because you start with Charlie the Caveman. And perhaps starting at the beginning is appropriate, but you draw almost a straight line from Charlie the Caveman 
to the Mil uh, Milton Friedman School of Economics, at least around compliance and ethics. And I was wondering if you could visit with us about that. Sure. So one, I'm not crazy. <laughs> Two, um, in my story, for those that haven't read it, I'm, I'm interviewing Charlie the caveman, but also Carrie the cavewoman and comparing between the two. And Charlie is very short-term oriented, uh, doesn't think, think things need to change within or outside the cave. And originally I, I wrote the article in 2008 when we had those Geico ads and they said even the caveman can do it. So I updated it to today because of so much debate over short-term uh, shareholder capitalism versus long-term stakeholder capitalism. Long story short, the, uh, I interview both. I end up hiring Carrie the cave woman using uh, the Al Plato's allegory of the cave because it's about people shackled in a dark cave. They can only see ahead and they only see shadows ahead of them based on a fire or bonfire lit behind them, which are being manipulated to create the shadows by I call um, the CEO, who is short-term oriented, the CFO, which we've seen in throughout history, are very short-term oriented to maximize profits and share price. So oftentimes, these folks want personal gain as well because their compensation is based on bonus. And sometimes the general counsel even because they control the agenda of the people that are shackled, seeing the shadows, thinking that the reality are the shadows. And that's the board of directors, employees, and the chief compliance officer. So if you can imagine three people shackled, that's the board, employees, and compliance, and the people manipulating the shadows are the CEO, CFO, and, um, and the general counsel. Someone ultimately, meaning uh, the CCO, leaves the cave, escapes, sees the reality of outside, which is both beautiful and quite ugly in terms of cyber risk, technology, and, and all the dangers of the world, he or she goes back to the cave to try to explain to the board and the employees that there is actually a reality beyond these shadows and that they too should see the broader world, see reality, but they're so used to manipulated by these short-term uh, Friedman-esque Share, uh, shareholder capitalists that they only want to believe what they see as opposed to think more longer term and protecting employees, uh, larger stakeholders like communities and society, the climate, etc. And this is where compliance can enlighten the board, particularly in this world of ESG, where there's much more emphasis in long term benefits for the climate, society, and how to run a clean organization. Let me turn to the uh, the school of thought around the Milton Friedman uh, uh, theories of economics. And uh, obviously, we've had an evolution in corporate thinking, uh, I think is best exemplified by the uh, corporate roundtable statement on the uh, purpose of a corporation, which expanded uh, the purpose from simply maximization of profit to uh, uh, multiple stakeholders within uh, that a corporation answers to uh, many years ago, uh, actually in 1980. I was at a conference uh, in, regarding labor arbitration, and one of the older arbitrators said he was most concerned with new economic theory, which focused on profit maximization. And that always struck me. Now, he was talking in the context of labor union relationships, moving from sort of runway shops from, 
New England to the Carolinas or other locations in the South to something very different. And I didn't realize the economic theory he was referring to at the time, but it's pretty clearly now. It was the Milton Friedman School of, of Economics. And as economic theory has evolved, has the uh, corporate control world or the types of controls been flexible enough to also evolve, in your opinion? It is evolving in some ways um, re in a revolutionary way because of what we've experienced with COVID and um, everything that we saw in the news around um, just the impact on society at different levels of society, particularly lower income uh, society. And um, the world is shouting right now and uh, the Business Roundtable, other institutions are trying to respond, but society is also saying, including employees and, and others, um, actions speak louder than words. And some companies are being called out uh, because their words don't necessarily meet their actions and it's demonstrated through protests and, and otherwise. Compliance and ethics plays a key role, uh, not only going back to the allegory of the cave and enlightening the board, which, who, who must play a large role in holding management accountable to act the way that they're speaking, in this case, in the context of ESG and longer term stakeholderism, uh, that profit maximization is no longer the norm, just like normative economics had previously assumed that people act rationally. People don't act rationally, they act emotionally. And Generation Z and the millennials have shifted the paradigm in terms of ex expecting firms and society to act more ethically, fairly. And the economics have to um, evolve with that as do at the microeconomic level, corporations and organizations. This is a fantastic but important opportunity for compliance to be the drivers of ethics, owners of the code to shape that behavior of, of the corporation uh, maximizing profit is still good, but it's got to be done responsibly to safeguard employees, as we learned with and still learn with COVID, but to look out for the rest of long-term society, climate, and, and governing. It's ESG with technology driving the risks and the opportunities. Uh, let me pick up on a couple of words you used, even, even phrases in there, because that was fabulous. The first one is opportunity. And here I would uh, bring up Wells Fargo, Boeing, WeWork. It really doesn't matter what this corporate scandal is. And often you hear people howling for scalps and, oh, they must be run by bad people. And uh, sort of a facile or easy approach to one of these scandals. When I look at it now, I look at it in the context of control failure and why uh, a having a robust set of controls can not only be the backbone for financial controls for your corporation, but also for compliance and ethics. Do you see uh, controls as not only the backbone, but also something that uh, compliance and ethics can help a company build out a more efficient business process system? Absolutely. And, and there's a lot of debate around the roles and responsibilities of the first line businesses, second line risk and, and compliance, and then third line audit, uh, which is 
supposed to be objectively testing for the effectiveness of, of those controls. But your points around Boeing, uh, Wells Fargo, and uh, WeWork, and there's so many, many others as, as, as we've, we've discussed over history is controls only go so far. There has to be that human element so that controls are not overridden, as we discussed before, for the wrong reasons. There have to be check and balances. There have to be um, effective challenge by the board, multiple moving parts, but working in harmony like that human body, which ultimately control the temperature, um, the heart rate, the health, if you will, of, of the corporate body. So controls, which can be broken down into people, process, and systems, the most important aspect of the three, going back to internal controls, are people. You can't have processes unless they're defined, clear, and accountable. The technology is only as good as the process is understood and efficient without gaps and controls, but it takes the people to drive them in harmony and in synchronization uh, to make it work. Some CEOs and other CFOs, uh, Enron being another example, are driven by the external environment because of fierce competition, greed, but sometimes desperation. So they'll manipulate the controls to override the numbers as one example, the financials. Fraud is, is another example. So there's laws that are in place that help uh, make companies accountable, but what's still missing, frankly, is making the executives accountable. And that's where the board comes in. That's where compliance absolutely comes in and the board and compliance partnering to hold management more accountable. Um, sometimes they have to go to jail, these uh, executives, and that drives and shapes uh, the longer term success uh, of corporations. Eric, you mentioned in uh, sort of a discussion of your professional background, you've had the opportunity to work at uh, several uh, financial institutions and help them build out a control system, both for domestic U.S. and international as well. I was wondering uh, if you were sitting down with uh, now a CCO uh, today, how would you help him or her, and if they're a lawyer, think through building out controls, recognizing they may have no professional or academic experience around internal controls? So first, I've worked with lawyers for lawyers and and uh, hired lawyers I have the utmost respect and compliance and legal uh, need to work well together but in that context they're partners uh, compliance should not be subordinate to legal and legal should not necessarily also the general counsel should not necessarily be chief compliance officer because their roles are different and sometimes there's inherent conflicts uh, between the two the reason why, in fact, I, I use the analogy, not only of the allegory of the cave, but interviewing uh, Charlie and Carrie, the caveman and the cavewoman, is they're certainly not lawyers, um, but they also need to be trained in internal controls, people, process, technology. Um, it's not rocket science, but it takes what I call the five attributes of a compliance officer, a chief compliance officer have to be calm because if there's a crisis, management and the board is calm. 
they have to be credible. So they have to have knowledge, not only of the laws and regs, but how to operationalize the gobbledygook laws and regs into operational procedures that the business can not only understand, but execute so that they, as the first line, can manage these risks. It's their clients, it's their credits, their market and operational risks. Um, compliance also needs to be confident, which is related to being uh, calm, but most importantly, they have to be courageous, whether to raise issues, disagree with the CFO or the CEO, go straight to the board, and they should be authorized as, as uh, directed under the U.S. sentencing guidelines to go straight to the board, whether it be integrity or speak up issues or the state of compliance risk in a predictive manner, not just what happened over the past quarter, as to where and what does good look like. It's defining the risk metrics, having the board approve what those compliance risks are. So this way, it reinforces the partnership, keeps management accountable for the long run. Eric, I've come around to thinking that the IPO process is incredibly important for not simply compliance and ethics, but also internal controls, because the regulators demand that you have essentially SOX 404 controls in place, but also the public demands it and the investing community demands it. And the, the best example, most recent best example I can point to is when WeWork was toying with trying to go public and some of the problems they had. I was wondering if you could talk about sort of the IPO process and how that fits into your view of internal controls. So in short, and um, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, but in, in essence, an IPO is essentially going from being a privately held company to publicly traded shares. And the demands and the expectations uh, which are justified is to create transparency of how a company operates, particularly around its financial statements, because um, an investor needs to be able to shop, if you will, apples to apples. So a balance sheet is a balance sheet from company to company, same with the income statement and other financials that support the balance sheet and the income statement. And behind that, as you say, is Section 404 and many other uh, rules, including registrations of, of securities. And the demands of that is uh, very rigorous. It requires expertise, an audit committee of the board so that there's an objective view of the numbers, external accountants to provide unqualified opinions, and uh, references and demonstrations through certifications that there is no fraud, no material impact on the financial statements, and that, oh, by the way, companies are complying with laws and regs, particularly, but not only around the financials, but taxes, uh, key laws and regs, and uh, disclosures, either through the management discussion and, and analysis section or other sections, if there are material issues that have occurred or will occur. So we work certainly uh, was great at building up uh, the anticipation for IPO purposes, but through disclosure, I call it the sunshine uh, disinfectant, uh, demonstrated that there was a lot more um, ugly facts, including losses, 
much greater than anticipated. Um, but that's what transparency provides. That's what not only the IPO provides, but the 10Ks, the 10Qs. That's why there's so much rigor around the SEC. And I anticipate even greater expectation and enforcement as they should and will by the SEC and their counterparts around the world. Uh, one of the concerns I have around the SPAC process is that we will not have that rigor and that transparent sunshine disinfectant that you've talked about. Uh, is, is my concern founded or am I just don't understand the process? I think you're absolutely right. Um, essentially, and colloquially, they refer to these as uh, blank check IPOs because it's a pooling of funds to ultimately decide which company uh, should go IPO. So if transparency and sunshine is the first principle, then there's two levels of the lack of transparency. One is the investors uh, pooling into the SPAC as to not necessarily knowing what the target company is, is going to be. So there's a level of faith as to what um, may come out of um, the returns from the IPO. So what if the SPAC investors invested in a WeWork type company and then it wasn't until uh, disclosures and the IPO process began to um, um, progress that the ugly warts started to come out and the share price was actually much worse, if not fraudulent, um, uh, for these investors. It's also not transparent for the, the target companies because one, will they be chosen? And two, um, who really calls the shots with respect to the IPO process, the, the types of disclosures and control? Um, and ultimately, the investors that are going to buy uh, the shares once it goes public, how thinly traded, how liquid, um, what's the share price going to be, what's the upside. So until and unless there's greater transparency, i.e. disclosures before, during and after this IPO process, um, I think there's more work to do, more risk. Eric, one of the uh, terms that I've heard used a little more frequency is governance. And it's when it's appended to information governance, data governance, compliance governance. I was wondering if you could give us a few words on your thoughts on control governance and what that might mean to you. So governance essentially is, I like to think of it as checks and balances. So is someone making unilateral decisions or taking action which maybe for uh, the wrong reasons, selfish personal reasons, or creating conflicts that's putting the company at risk or customers at, at harm. So there needs to be governance. It's become more granular because typically looking at ESG again, when people think of governance, they think of the board of directors governing over um, management's uh, operations. But because of the business judgment rules, it's fairly light touch uh, until cases like Bluebell and, and Clovis, and we can talk about them in a moment. Governance now is more granular because there's a much greater focus on data, much greater focus on controls and whether they're actually working and whether there is a segregation of duties between the front office and the back office, which can inflate um, 
uh, profits or hide losses. There's plenty of examples of that. So regulators uh, are looking at not only the output, but more importantly, the input of, of data or the input that uh, ultimately resulted in the decision, which is the output. And they're looking at multiple aspects of what, why, how well, how documented decisions and data um, are derived. So like a financial statement, and I think you and I have talked about this and, and, and agree that compliance and ethics should be viewed very much like financial controls and the system of internal controls, whether it be internal accounting controls or otherwise, because you need input to produce output. But unless you have rigor throughout that input and output process like the human body or producing a financial statement, how can there be trust in the integrity of that output? Data, controls, numbers, words, or in the case of ESG and the Business Roundtable, actions. Eric, as we move into 2025 or beyond, where do you see controls going? And also, how do you see them utilized by compliance uh, to evolve compliance programs? There needs to be greater investment in the technology. Um, AI is artificial intelligence is a necessity. It's no longer a nice to have. Uh, this goes back to Milton Friedman's school of, of um, capitalism, which capitalism, you know, I want to make clear that I'm very much a capitalist and, and believe in maximizing profits, but it's got to be done safely and for the longer run and for broader stakeholders. But Having said that, um, it's important also to make sure, I'm losing my train of thought here, asking the question again, because I, I, I lost my train of thought. Sure, uh, uh, into 2025 and, and even Got it. So the technology needs to be invested in um, compliance metrics, compliance artificial intelligence, particularly through uh, governance risk and, and compliance tools, which are enterprise-wide, that take in and apply all this data, whether it be surveillance exceptions or policies and procedures, training, um, uh, the end-to-end -end compliance program, including um, amendments to financial statements, because it's a type of, of compliance at the end of the day, so that you not only have um, data that's output, but smart data, predictive analytics in a capsulized way for the chief compliance officer to go to the board, tell its story, not saying here's the black box of all the numbers and colors, but explain thematically to the board um, where we're heading, what good looks like, um, based on key risks driven by the risk assessment, but without the tools, in this case, artificial intelligence, whether it be natural learning or reinforcement learning, um, that's the biggest piece that's missing for compliance today because it's very good through spreadsheets manually to predict uh, the past or and to look at the past but not predict the future based on emerging risks. Eric, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time. And as you know, this podcast series is sort of wrapped around 
my upcoming book, The Compliance Handbook, second edition. But as I mentioned, you also have a book coming out. I was wondering if you might be able to tease our audience a little bit about uh, what it's about and uh, why, why actually you sat down to write it. Sure. First of all, congratulations on, on your second edition. And I think it's an excellent book as a practitioner. Um, it not only provides the day-to-day, -day, uh, for your book, the day-to-day to-dos, but also crystallizes it in ter terms of daily takeaways. So I applaud you for that. In terms of my book, um, Declaration of Independence, it's meant to highlight the strategic partnership between the board and compliance uh, to be independent and most importantly, hold management more accountable. So it's in two parts. It highlights lessons learned from my professional career, talking about some of the companies that I've gone through the good, bad, and the ugly. The second part is more technical, but highlights uh, six recommendations um, around how to clean an organization, transparency and, and um, being one of them, whistleblowers and protecting them, holding mansion accountable through, and some of them are rather draconian just to, to tease the, the reader. Um, and empowering the compliance officer, not only with uh, the structure and the direct access without management, but also with the investment in, in the tool. So it's a compliance hexagon, which is built into what I call the compliance honeycomb because it relies on the Homeland Security's uh, list of critical infrastructure industries because um, banking, commerce through technology particularly big tech, social media, and fintechs are blurring the lines and therefore blurring the risks. And we have to know each other's industries, higher risks, common denominators such as cybersecurity, and, and work as a more integrated honeycomb, as I call it, uh, to address all of these internal control challenges, which um, is being attacked every day through cyber and other big risks that we don't even realize. Work, I wanted to uh, thank you for taking the time to visit with us today. This has been a fascinating exploration and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. This is Tom Fox. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Compliance Handbook. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and tune in next week. Until then, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks again, and I look forward to visiting with you again.